Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 18, continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. <clears throat> Father, we praise you for your word, and we praise you for this account of your servant David and the struggles and the trials and the conflict that he experienced. We pray that as David shows us Jesus, so we would look to Jesus to model and be conformed to the image of our Savior. So, Father, fill us with your spirit that we may understand and hear and grow by these things. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our nearest kinsman, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever stopped to consider the power and the influence of great songwriting? When you think of the various art forms that have an impact on our society, certainly movies have uh, influential uh, power and books are influential as well. But is there anything more quickly absorbed than the song? Is there anything more accessible than a song? Think of your favorite movie for just a minute and all the work and the money and the time that goes into making a film, a great film. You might only watch your favorite movie five or 10 times in your lifetime, unless you're three years old and then you watch it back to back to back to back to back. But most of us ordinarily will watch a movie once and like it or not like it, but then go on. The vast majority of movies you don't rewatch. Consider all the hours that go into writing or rewriting an amazing novel. How many times will you reread your favorite book? Maybe you'll go back to it a few times. Every, you know, 10 years or so, you might read it again. But how many times will you listen to your favorite song over your lifetime? Well, dozens, if not hundreds, if not hundreds and hundreds of times. You listen to it over and over. Musical is powerful in its own way. It has its own kind of glory that's different from other art forms. Music has a way of sticking with us. You'll, you'll never get a novel stuck in your head. I've never walked around and said, call me Ishmael. You know, I never, I never got that stuck in my head. Movies don't get stuck in our head, but songs get stuck all the time. And songs have this power to transport us back to a place and a time. I remember where I was when that song came out and who I was with. M songs are like these little time machines in that way. You never, you never say, hey, look, 
they're playing our movie. You know, you never say that. But you do say, hey, listen, they're playing our song. So, so songs have this special kind of glory. And the Bible reveals this important role that music plays in a society. Just about every time there's an amazing deliverance, every time there's a prayer answered or a hope fulfilled in the Bible, there is singing. And quite often, it's women who get the singing started. Now, certainly, plenty of men sing in the Bible. Sing, singing is not a specifically feminine activity. I'm not saying that. But uh, when we hear singing and when we hear uh, music and when we hear dancing, more often than, than not, in, in the narrative, it's women who are getting it started. M Miriam uh, sang, as we read uh, before the baptism this morning. Miriam sang after the deliverance through the Red Sea. Deborah sings after the victory over Jabin and Sisera. Jephthah's daughter comes out singing and playing instruments when uh, Jephthah comes home after defeating the Ammonites. Um, Hannah sings over the birth of her son, which forecasts Mary's song over the coming birth of her son when Mary sings in Elizabeth's house. When the mighty bridegroom acts in creation, when the mighty bridegroom acts in history, the bride responds with singing. She glorifies and she elevates and she beautifies and magnifies and amplifies the deeds of the Lord with music. This is why you see women singing. It's the, it's the bride role to respond with music, with singing. So Jesus, our mighty bridegroom, has delivered us from death and bondage. He has delivered us from Egypt. He has killed the serpent. He has slain the giant. And so the church sings in response. The, the bride sings. That's what we do. In our study of 1 Samuel so far, we've We've witnessed another surprising, exhilarating deliverance. Yahweh has delivered the Philistines. I'm sorry, he's delivered his people from the Philistines and their terrifying champion, Goliath, through this young shepherd boy named David. Now, now what do you do when you hear this amazing news? Well, you sing and you dance. You pick up whatever instruments you can play and you make as much noise as you can. And that's what the young women do when they hear about this incredible deliverance of God. They, they write a song, and it's a song that has dance moves because they're all dancing, and everybody knows the dance. It's the hottest new dance hit of the summer. It's the number one billboard top charting hit of the year. Even the Philistines, later we find out the Philistines know about this song. That's, it's, it's a worldwide record. It's a hit. And, and the name of the tune is Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's, it's, really, it's really one of those tunes that sticks in your head and stays with you. And everybody loves it. Everybody is singing this song except Saul. And he hates it. He hates this song. He can't stand it. And the fact that Saul is acting weird and grouchy and suspicious while everyone, is, everyone else is celebrating shows you where his heart is. And the fact that, that he hates this song shows that he's continuing that tragic spiral into complete apostasy where he's going to end up at the end. Well, as we just read, uh, chapter 18 begins with a comment on the friendship between David and Jonathan. Uh, there are several interesting features to this brotherly love between these two faithful men. The first is that Jonathan has to be 
about 40 years old at this point. They're not a couple of teenagers who are buddies together. Jonathan is about 40. David is 16 or 17 at this point in the, in the narrative. So they're not equals in the sense that they're the same age. They're also not equals in social status. Jonathan is a prince. Jonathan is the son of the king, a mighty warrior even, with, a, with a, a hero's record, plenty of medals so far. David is a poor shepherd boy from nowhere. Um, there's a, not a, not a, they're not the same age. They're not at the same status socially. What's more, very soon it's going to become evident, if it isn't already evident to Jonathan, that David is going to take Jonathan's place. Samuel has told Saul that Jonathan is not going to be king, that the line of Saul ends with Saul. Jonathan is going to be passed over as faithful and as courageous and as honorable Jonathan is because of Saul's failures, the royal line is going to pass to David's family. Now, we saw last week how David's oldest brother acted uh, because, you know, he was passed over as well. And you see how spiteful and hateful and angry um, uh, David's older brother acted toward David. You might expect Jonathan to act the same way out of jealousy. You might even expect Jonathan to try to kill David. In fact, that's the way it worked in the ancient world. That's what you would expect to happen. If there's a rival for your throne, if there's a rival for your crown, you kill him. You just put him to death and everybody would understand. That's what you do. But that's not what Jonathan does. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. And not only that, but he gives David his robe. He gives him his armor. He gives him his sword. He gives him his bow and he gives him his belt. What, what's Jonathan doing? Jonathan is giving David his princely military uniform. He's saying to David, here, I'm older than you, and I'm a prince, and you're just a shepherd boy, and you're only 16 or 17 years old, but now we're equals. Now, uh, you are, you're just like me. You're a brother. Uh, you, you, are, you are doing the same job I'm doing. There isn't going to be a bloody, violent exchange of power as far as Jonathan is concerned. When it comes time for David to take his place, we read right here that what Jonathan is ready to do, Jonathan is ready to step aside. Uh, Jonathan is saying, I'm not going to fight you for the throne. There's going to be a peaceful transfer of power, which is what the Bible commands. The godly are not revolutionaries. We are not reactionaries. When we want change, we don't set the world on fire and kill people and, and, and kill whoever gets in the way of our agenda and then, and then steal and tear down and riot. That's not, how, that's not how the godly affect change. The godly are reformers. We oppose wickedness. We oppose injustice, we oppose unrighteousness, but we maintain civility and order and stability because we understand the weapons of our warfare are not bricks and clubs and pitchforks and torches and guillotines. The weapons of our warfare are word and water, bread and wine. And God fights our battles for us when we are faithful and obedient to him. So Jonathan understands this and he understands we don't need a revolution here. We don't need a, a violent, bloody uh, upheaval of society for this exchange to happen. I'm going to initiate it. I'm going to give this young man my uniform. Now, this is what I'm prepared to do. And so Jonathan reaches down to this poor kid from Bethlehem and makes a covenant with him. 
I want to pick this up in verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and David behaved wisely. In, in Proverbs 8, wisdom personified is speaking, and wisdom says, By me, kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles all the judges of the earth. So, so if David is behaving wisely, and his growth in wisdom is evident, then he's certainly preparing to be king. By wisdom, kings rule. And so David is behaving wisely. He's starting to act like a king. David is being groomed by the Holy Spirit to be the wise kind of king that Saul isn't. Now, remember, and we're going to keep coming back to this, David is being shown over and over and over to be the anti-Saul. He's, he, his behavior is contrasted with Saul repeatedly, and, and that's going to continue. Let's pick it up in the middle of verse 5. Saul set him, Saul set David over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. How does it make sense to put a teenager in charge of fighting men? Why does he do this? Well, this is an aristocratic society, and David is a member of Saul's house now. David is a royal son, and even though he's not militarily trained, his defeat of Goliath was miraculous. It was, it, it was courageous. It was honorable. But, but David doesn't have the experience of leading men on a field of battle. And so Saul puts David over the fighting men because of his position in Saul's house. He's given a high rank. Princes don't go into the army as privates, but if they're wise, if princes are wise, they're going to surround themselves with good counselors, which we will find David doing. And even when David sets up his own kingdom, what does he have around him? He has a whole band of mighty men. He has counselors who he relies upon, many of which are older than he is, and he listens to them. He doesn't pretend like he's the big boss man at 17 years old and act like he knows everything. He, he falls in line and he's surrounded with good counselors. Now at this point we read that the women come out from all the cities of Israel. The women come out singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments, singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was angry and the saying displeased him. And Saul said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they've only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. Saul is watching David. Saul is suspicious of David. The text says that the women come out to meet King Saul. And as they come out to meet him, they're dancing and rejoicing and they're playing musical instruments. It doesn't appear to me at all as if their intention with this is to slight Saul or to insult him with their song lyrics. In fact, their song follows that parallel formula of, of Hebrew verse that we find all over the scriptures. It's all over the Psalms and Proverbs, where even when we read our, our responsive Psalms on Sunday morning, it's I say a thing and you say, well, here's a different way of saying that thing. So here's a thing and here's a different way of, of saying it. So, so why do the nations rage? and the people imagine a vain thing. That's, that's two ways of saying the same thing. Oh, Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your displeasure. See, it's, it's I say it, and then the, 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 the groom says a thing, and the bride responds, well, let me glorify that a little bit. Let me say it a little bit differently, and it, and it comes back in a different way. And that's, that's how Hebrew verse is written. Or another construction you see is here's a thing, and now here's a thing amplified. 
so in the Proverbs we get, there are three things which are too wonderful for me, yes, four which I do not understand. Or, or there are six things Yahweh hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. So, so here's a thing, and here's a thing plus one. Here's a thing, and, and here's more. So, so when the women sing, they're, they're following this kind of formula. Saul has done great things, and David has done great things, plus one. This doesn't imply, though, that they're praising one more than the other. In fact, depending on how you hear it and how you look at it, you might say they're praising Saul more. Saul comes first. Saul sets the pattern. He made it possible for David to have the great victory. Another consideration is that ultimately, as faithful women of Israel, they're not really praising Saul or David. They're praising Yahweh that through Saul and through David, God has, has afforded them this, this great victory. He's accomplished great things through Saul and through David. And a humble man, a man who is right in the head, a man who is faithful would say, oh, yes, oh my goodness, I, I am so uh, uh, happy that we're all rejoicing together in this great victory. But it doesn't matter to Saul what they mean. And it doesn't matter what they don't mean because Saul takes this in the worst possible sense. I, I don't get, I mean, Saul's maybe not a great poet to begin with and he doesn't understand how this works. But Saul takes great offense and he compares the numbers and he sees that David as a, is a rival in the eyes of the people. I have no doubt that even if they flipped the names around, maybe if they said David has slain his thousands, but Saul his ten thousands, he would have got mad that they named David first. There's no, there's no, uh, rational uh, process of thought going on here. This is not a, this is, this is a no-win situation. Saul is determined to be offended. He is demonically oppressed, and so he's going to misinterpret everything. It, it is hard for me to believe that these women go out singing to Saul, intending to offend him. That, that is impossible for me to believe. They intend to insult the king of Israel, who they are praising in the song. It uh, doesn't make sense. Let's not also forget this. It would have been very easy for Saul to have prevented sharing his glory with a teenage shepherd boy. All he had to do was go out and be Israel's champion. He was designed to be a giant killer. He's the tallest of all Israel. He's head and shoulders above everybody. He's the only one with an iron sword and an iron spear. He is equipped and built to be Israel's champion. And he sat and let David go do it for him. If he had just been the man God had designed him to be, then all the verses of all the songs would have been about Saul. He could have prevented this, but it's too late for that now. So let's pick up from verse 10. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside his house. Now remember, when the Holy Spirit first came upon Saul, he prophesied. And now this distressing spirit comes upon him. And what kind of prophecy is coming out of his mouth now? So, so David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. There's a, there's a lyre in David's hand. There is a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. That's the iron spear that he was supposed to use against Goliath. That's the spear he was supposed to use in victory against God's enemies, and instead he uses it against David. You are equipped with uh, all kinds of gifts that God has given you to use against God's enemies. 
And yet often in families, in churches, we don't want to go fight the enemy. We want to fight each other. We want to fight the soft targets. And we take all of the, all the gifts and all the equipment that God has given us and we turn it toward those closest to us. And that's what Saul is doing here uh, because he's an unrepentant, uh, foul, awful man. And this is beyond rational. And it's, it's really unbelievable when you think about it from David's perspective. I'm here to serve you and I'm here to love you and you try to kill me? Not once, but twice. Now, now you and I can be thankful that Saul's aim isn't that good or maybe David is just really quick, but he gets away. And now David finds himself in an extremely complicated situation. When you're on the battlefield with a Goliath, when you're out there facing an enemy of God, a blasphemer, it's pretty clear what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to treat this enemy. You, you crush his head, you throw a party, and you praise God. There's not a lot of complexity there. It's pretty cut and dried. When you face God's enemies, when you face a Goliath, you crush his head, you party, you praise God. But now, confronted with Saul, the anointed of God, the current king who has gone insane, the right way to behave and the right way to respond is not so obvious. How can I be faithful and how can I submit and yet at the same time avoid getting killed? Saul has become a Goliath in the house of the, of the, of, of the king of Israel. We have a Goliath, a tall man with a spear who's trying to kill us. How do we deal with this Goliath? The other Goliath, that's simple. This one is complicated. We'll come back to this at the end of the chapter and we'll consider this more as we go along. But I want you to pay close attention to the way that David deals with Saul. It deserves our reflection and our attention. David's dealing with Goliath is really exciting and it's really wonderful, but it's also very simple. It's good versus evil. I imagine that you and I find ourselves in conflicts with more Saul's than we do with Goliath's. And we can learn a lot from David's faithfulness. I'm going to come back to this point at the very end. Well, we find out in verse 12, everybody loves David. Verse 12, uh, Saul was afraid of David because Yahweh was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. And when he went out and came in before the people and David behaved wisely in all his ways and Yahweh was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. That's a, that's a phrase, a little idiom, a Hebrew idiom you'll hear of all the mighty men who go out and come in. They go out and fight, they come in and rest. They go out and fight and they come in and rest. David is going out and coming in. Everybody loves David. Jonathan loves David. The women of the cities love David. Israel and Judah love David. In a moment, we'll find out that Saul's younger daughter, Michal, loves David. David is the man. He is in he's good favor with everybody except Saul. Now, Saul has determined that he's going to ignore the Holy Spirit. He's going to disobey God. And he's got the whole congregation of Israel against him. Even his own family are not on the same side as he is. And you think, Saul, can't you just get a clue? Can't you take a hint? Everybody loves him. It's obvious God's favor is with him. Do you really think that you're the only one in the whole congregation of Israel and your whole family 
who has this right. How can you set yourself at odds with that many people at once? Arrogance and ignorance is mind-boggling on this scale. But, but we see this in our families, don't we? There's that one member of the family. Now, everybody's having a good time. Everybody's happy. There's that one person who is just determined, I'm not going to be happy. And I'm not going to get happy. And I'm not going to let anybody else get happy. So I'm going to make everybody miserable. And I'm going to let everybody know how miserable I am. And I'm going to ruin everything. And that's what Saul is doing. And it's, it's, uh, it's destructive and it's harmful and uh, it's hurtful. Verse 17, Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight Yahweh's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but the, let, let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel the Meholethite as a wife. Remember, there was a reward for the one who killed Goliath, and that was that you would get to marry the king's daughter. So David killed Goliath, and he ought to be able to marry the king's oldest available daughter. But now because Saul is suspicious of David, Saul is going to run the old Laban trick. You remember how Laban mistreated Jacob? Laban made promises he didn't keep. And he strung Jacob along. Well, Saul is going to do the same thing with David. Here's my daughter Mirab, and, and you can have her, but I need you to be valiant, and I need you to keep fighting. And Saul thinks, well, I'm not going to have to kill David. If I put him in enough conflict, David is going to get killed fighting the Philistines, and we won't have to put up with him anymore. And so after some time, when, when Saul is supposed to give his daughter and walk her down the aisle and give her to David, he gives her to some other guy. And if, if Saul is behaving like a Laban, then David better get ready to act like a Jacob. So, so David knows his history, as we saw last week. David, David knows his stories because we see how wisely he acts. David knows what play is being run against him. Saul is going to keep changing the rules, and, and he's going ha- to keep David twisting in the wind for years and years. And so to, to prevent that, David is going to have to fight for what is his own, and he's going to have to force Saul to keep his promises. Verse 20. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. Now Saul knows his daughter, Michal, and he knows that she's a handful, as we'll see very quickly, uh, that she's a handful for David, uh, and, and he thinks she's going to be a distraction, and uh, it, it turns out that she does become contemptuous, and she starts acting just like her daddy. She starts out loving David, uh, and, uh, but, but Saul sees through this. He knows um, that she'll be, she'll be a snare to him. So verse 22, David communicated his, to his servants, I'm sorry, David commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So David's servant spoke the words in the hearing of David. Saul's servant spoke these words in the hearing of David. And David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, in this manner, 
uh, David spoke. David is saying, I'm not a rich man. I can't afford a dowry for a princess. Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as wife. There's so much insanity going on with Saul at this point, it's almost hard to articulate all of it. Again, he's repeating this old thing. This is, this is my army. These are my enemies. Uh, this is what has gotten him into trouble in the past. No, this is Yahweh's army. These are Yahweh's enemies. And, and, um, and Saul's awkward, weird, disgusting solution is to forcefully, by, by, by brute force, circumcise the Philistines. This is how we do this. And I know that if I send David to do this, that, uh, that you know, no man is going to be circumcised against his will. You may have to kill him to circumcise him. And so he sends David out to collect 100 Philistine foreskins. And then David comes back with 200. Well, you can't trust a guy like Saul. He may change the deal. So I'm going to make sure that uh, I do double of what he asks so he doesn't weasel out and, and double cross me. This stuff doesn't make it into the VeggieTales version of, uh, of, of these stories. Some of us were talking last week about how so much of this stuff gets sanitized, but this is brutal and it's ugly and it's terrible. And it just shows you where Saul's heart is and it shows you where his head is. This is, this is terrible. And yet David is trying to navigate all of this. I'm going to finish the chapter and then, then close with a few thoughts. Saul saw and knew that Yahweh was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. So it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. When, when David says to Saul, I'm, I'm lightly esteemed, I'm nobody. No, David is highly esteemed at the end of this chapter. All the glory and the honor and the acclaim that should be Saul's now rightly flows to David. David is inheriting the kingdom one victory at a time. But this doesn't happen because David is grasping for it. He's not demanding it. He's not throwing a hissy fit. He's humble and he's patient and he's wise. Four times in this text, we read that David is wise. One of those times it says he's behaving very wisely. So if David is behaving wisely here in his in his conflict with a Goliath in his own house, I think it's good for us to stop and think about what he's doing in this very complicated situation. This is a theme that's going to develop over the next several chapters. And, and this, this account is just a preview of how David is going to behave. But, but what does David do here? First of all, in his dealings with Saul, David never returns evil for evil. David is never spiteful. David is never vengeful. Instead, he's going to serve Saul and he's going to respect him as king even when he's being harassed and pursued by Saul. How comfortable would you be around somebody who's tried to kill you not once but twice? Man, I'm just playing my guitar here to calm you down and you throw a spear at my head. I don't know if I want to come back. You know, maybe I'm not that great of a guitar player to begin with, but I'm not going to put up with this. 
How difficult would, you be, would, would it be for you to show that person any honor? Somehow David is going to stand before Saul the day after he has a spear thrown at him. And David deals with Saul out of respect and honor for the office that he holds. Now, I don't, I'm not going to diminish any of that by what I'm about to say now. David respects and honors Saul. And he never takes vengeance on him. But secondly... David's respect for Saul doesn't mean that he has to stand there and take his abuse. David's strategy, more often than not, is to remove himself from the situation. Eventually, he's going to go very far from Saul, and he's going to keep going. Here, when David throws a spear at him, he gets out of the house. David doesn't stand there and escalate. I mean, Jonathan has given him his sword. He could escalate. He might win, but he doesn't do that. He leaves. When you're dealing with an irrational maniac like Saul, it is good and right and proper for you to get out, to get away and leave the situation. Abusers take advantage of their position over you and they take advantage of your vulnerability to think that you're not going to do anything and you're not going to go anywhere, and you're not, you're, uh, I've got you. Now, now, there may be a time where you are called to suffer for righteousness' sake at the hand of some pagan authority. And there may be a time where God calls you to a Gethsemane situation, where Jesus stands there and allows himself to be arrested to go to the cross. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about suffering for righteousness' sake against a pagan authority. David is in covenant with Saul. This is a different situation. Jesse has sent David to go live in Saul's house. And David is being abused and mistreated. And his life is threatened by this man who is supposed to care for David's well-being. No definition of honor and respect and obedience requires you to stand and take abuse from someone who is called to love you and provide for you. God does not expect you to do that. I don't care if you're a man. I don't care if you're a woman. I don't care if you're a child. God does not require you to stand and be abused by someone whose calling it is to love you and to care for you and provide for you. God does not expect that. In fact, the best way to honor an abuser like Saul is to reveal his abuse, not to cover it up, not to help him continue with it, get away get out and appeal to a higher authority. Call your pastor, call your elders, let someone know what is going on. Now, David appeals to the Lord. And later he has Michal's help and he has Jonathan's help because they know their dad is out of his mind. They understand what's going on and they help David. Um, and we have to be clear on this because there's, um, and, and this is complicated, and, and a wrinkle is that there is also this, this kind of false victimhood culture uh, present in our world today where, where if a child is asked to clean up their room, they'll throw up their hands and say, oh, you're abusing me and you have no right. You have no authority over me to tell me I've got to clean my room. And then, and then they blow it up and out of proportion. Um, and, and, it, and it's, in, it's unjust to those who are really being abused to have this kind of fake, this, this crying wolf uh, that goes on. That's why you go to wise counsel who can say, oh yeah, that's not right. You want to find counsel who has a definition of sin. You want to have a counsel who has a definition and understanding of God's law. You want somebody who is biblically literate who can say, oh yeah, no, that's not asking you to 
unload the dishwasher is not abuse. Uh, you don't, but, oh, he said that, oh, he did that, oh, that's, no, we can't tolerate that, and he needs to be called uh, to repentance. Uh, you see, that's why you find an appeal. That's why you find somebody. Remember when Jesus was being mistreated? In Nazareth, the people in his hometown, his people, his family got so irrationally angry with Jesus, they wanted to throw him off a mountain. And what did Jesus do? He passed through the midst of them. He left. And if Jesus doesn't have to stand there and take that, neither do you. You don't have to either. Get away and get help. Thirdly, David never gives Saul any legitimate reason to hate him. David never sins against Saul. Even one time, he kind of comes close to disrespecting him, and it, it, it hurts David to even, you know, he, his conscience is afflicted by what he does. But, but in the end, Saul's treatment of David is never justified. David is guiltless. David loves his enemy, and he exercises self-control because David knows that God is the final judge, and God always judges rightly. God always vindicates the righteous. So David knew, I can be patient and I can let God deal with Saul. The reason that it's important to stop and think about these kinds of situations when they come up in scripture, this is why I love going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through God's word, is because these things come up and, and I don't know what some of you are dealing with, but some of you may be dealing with or putting up with a Saul in your house. You never know where you stand from one day to the next. They blow up at you one day, or, or maybe it's at the office, or maybe at your place of business, or maybe in your broader family. But the person blows up at you one day, and the next day they want to act like nothing ever happened. That's kind of what Saul does. You're always walking on eggshells. There's, there's somebody who holds you in contempt and hates you for no discernible reason. Someone who isn't thinking rationally or behaving in any kind of predictable manner. Maybe they haven't tried to kill you the way that Saul tried to kill David, but even that underscores David's faithfulness. Saul tried to kill David, and this is the way he responds. And uh, uh, so you might be dealing with somebody very much like Saul. So you must not sin against them, but you don't have to trust them. And don't let yourself begin to believe their crazy accusations. When you have somebody making crazy statements and doing things like Saul, you start to doubt yourself and you start to think, oh my goodness, maybe I am worthless. Maybe I am really awful. Maybe I do deserve this. You start to think that you're the crazy one. No. And if you were talking to David, you would say, no, David, it's not you. All this stuff, all this paranoia and this jealousy is in Saul's head. This is Saul's problem. This isn't your problem. In fact, no part of this is your fault, David. You are not obligated to accept his version of reality. And we know where his version of reality has come from. It's come from repeatedly walking away from opportunities to confess and repent his, of his sin. We've seen this over and over and over. Saul is confronted with his sin and all he has to do is confess it and repent and he fails over and over and over and over. It has hardened his heart. The Lord has left him. And now he is this insane maniac who is destroying everybody around him. David's protection and David's blessed future lies in the fact that he has something stronger at play in his life than Saul's anger. He has Yahweh's favor. Though Saul's anger is manifest and spears getting thrown at him and, and David gets sent on these suicide missions, David keeps an eye on God's protection and God's providence. Yahweh's favor won out over Saul's anger. 
So don't let your present conflicts overshadow God's favor and God's love for you. Don't forget who God says you are. Don't listen to the false accuser. I wanted to read, I'm out of time. I wanted to read Psalm 55. Will you read Psalm 55 this afternoon in light of what we just read in David's complaint to God for this abusive person who is in covenant with him and who is supposed to love him and instead is abusing him. Look at Psalm 55 in context of this. Uh, But now let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would, uh, first of all, deliver us from uh, our enemies and help us like your son David, like your son Jesus, behave wisely in the face of false accusation, in the face of trouble, in the face of, of abusive behavior. But also, God, we cry out to you, may None of us use our position of authority like Saul did. May none of us use our position of authority in an abusive or manipulative way. God, bring us to our knees in repentance and convict us if we do that. Father, strengthen your church and strengthen your people and protect the innocent and protect us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.